on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined by your OBS crew, Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, OBS commemorates Asian Heritage Month by spotlighting some of the biggest players on the scene today. Plus, two-minute drill, finalists for the Met National Council auditions are named, and the 2021 International Opera Awards are handed out virtually. Lots of sports to talk about before we get into it. Oliver Camacho, any sports on your mind? No, but it's the 2020 International Opera Awards. Uh, is it? They they are calling it the 2021 ceremony, but it's very confusing because it does seem to be just <laughs> all of the nominees from 2020. <laughs> exactly. Is it, is, it, is it like the Oscars where it's like it's the 2021 Oscars, but it's for awards for things that happen I, in 2020? I think. I think that the Opies might have pandemic brain and they can't tell what year it is. <laughs> Time is a flat circle. Where is? Where are we? 1964? I don't know. Speaking of sports, though, I feel like going forward, we should be on Olympic watch. What is happening? Are the Olympics going to happen? Mm. Weekly updates. I'm starting to get a little nervous, I have yeah. to say, because since we recorded last week, they imposed a lockdown in Tokyo and they've extended mm-hmm. it through the end of the month. And there was a poll that came out today in The Guardian that says that 60% of people in Japan think they should cancel them. And it's May. So I don't know if I expect that to go up or down, but it's not a great it's sign. Not a great number, no. Weston Williams also very uh, suspicious about if the Olympics are going to go ahead. <laughs> Ashley, what was, up, what was up with the Kentucky Derby? So many things were up with the Kentucky Derby. Uh, as I uh, as I said in my little tagline today, America, where even our non-human champions fail the drug tests. Um, so Medina, the horse that won the Kentucky Derby, uh, failed its drug test. Uh, that happened right around that time. But according because to- Because it couldn't pee in the cup, like it kept missing? It failed? <laughs> Have they looked into I mean, Russian dope? That's a very big cups for that, I think. <laughs> Listen, listen, if the horse was a willing participant, that's one thing. But we got to get the horse on the record. We got to interview this man. First of all, uh, yeah, so he's, according to the reporting that was out earlier this afternoon, they're still going to let Medina uh, in the Preakness, uh, minus the trainer. So they've actually banned the trainer, but the horse is going to get to run. That This is the most confusing intro of sports <laughs> on a show ever. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Thank you. 
podcast listeners, you just enjoyed Sumi Joe in an aria from an operetta by Jacques Offenbach. Who knows what operetta that was? <laughs> it's just one of those things <laughs> that has just scales and staccati and lots of eyebrows going up and down as you go up and down all those passages. Uh, recorded in 1995 uh, mm. in Korea with the London Philharmonic, starring arguably the biggest name of the uh, Asian, Eastern Asian opera singers, Sumi Jo. Uh, she's a singer that I've just adored ever since I was just a little wee one. Um, <laughs> so many things to love about Sumi Jo. She was 21 when she entered the Academia di Santa Cecilia, where she studied with, among others, Carla Bergonzi. She made her debut uh, in Europe, singing the role of Gilda in Trieste, Italy, as a 24-year-old. Wow. Uh, she was sort of discovered by Herbert von Karajan, uh, who picked her to sing Oscar in his recording of Balo and Mascara, uh, opposite one tenor we don't talk about anymore. Mm. Um, and she was going to sing that same role at the Salzburg Festival, but then Karajan died and she didn't get to debut that year. But of course, she went on to sing at the Salzburg Festival many times after that. Her Met debut came at age 27, also in the world of Gilda. She came to Chicago in 1990 to sing Queen of the Night, making her Chicago debut. Um, Sumi Jo is a singer that I think of when I want to hear just frivolous, fun, fast passage work with pinpoint staccati and brilliant intonation. I don't really look to her when I want to hear a lot of language or like interpretation, <laughs> you know, I just, when you just want fun, we just want to like eat candy, you know, or like eat pastries, you know, that is Sumi Joe. And she is such a showman or a show person. Uh, she's really into fashion and she is known to wear multiple gowns in her performances, her concert performances. She works with certain designers. I think right now she's working with a female Korean designer specifically, but she has worked with many designers and uh, she loves volume <laughs> in her clothes. And just <laughs> the concert blacks are yeah. not sufficient. <laughs> Actually, she says, I don't wear black. I don't wear deep, dark colors. Cause she says, exactly. I, I want to pop. I want there to be color on the stage. And she loves a tool, you know? Um, so, Look up Sumi Joe. We'll probably include some images as I'm talking here for the video version of this podcast, but just look it up and you could see decades worth of gowns. She's worn over 300 outfits uh, on the stage um, and she loves to do it. And she talks about it. It's like, yeah, it's like, and we want to give the audience something to look at. And we, I want the gown to like match like the flavor of the music, you know? So if it's like a charity concert, I'll wear something more demure, you know, if there's children in the audience, you know, but if it's like a Baroque piece, it'll be like brocades and stuff like that. And if it's, <laughs> you know, whatever, she's, she's, she has definitely like a style that she's going for. And I think she is still single. Um, and she has been interviewed many times and she seems very open about her personal life. She loves animals. She loves Italian food. She lives in Rome. Um, and uh, she is a big dog person. And I think you can often, when she's singing at the Met, people always mention like how you'll see her like walking through Lincoln Center, like wearing a baseball cap and like carrying a small dog. Yes. 
Um, this is my dream life. Um, she, I mean, she's old school and she talks about food and weight and how there's pressure to be thin and how she doesn't eat when she has to perform like, you know, and she, all she wants is to like eat pizza and pasta. She's crazy about carbs, but, uh, she's very disciplined and she talks about her mom sometimes in her interviews. And I get the feeling as, you know, somebody who's half Asian that maybe her mom was a tiger mom. Uh, her mom was a huge fan of Joan Sutherland. And you could definitely see the influence in repertoire um, with Joan Sutherland. Uh, and there was one anecdote that she tells often where she was singing a concert, I think in France, and her father was on her deathbed. And her mother said, no, you do the concert because the audience paid to hear you. And she dedicated the concert to her dad who died while she was singing. Mm, so. Gosh. I don't know. It's a lot of stuff there. <laughs> it's it's none of our business, but it's out there for you to read if you look for it. Um, but ultimately, she is a, a singer that just gives joy. And uh, I applaud her for that, for knowing that that's what her skill is. And she is so accurate in her passage work. And she can sing as fast as Beverly Sills or Amanda Forsythe. She's speed is on her side. Um, and, you know, she's recorded, I don't know, a gajillion solo albums at this point and she sung everything if it has passage work in it yeah sure i'll sing it <laughs> and honestly speaking of joan sutherland the first time i ever heard sumi joe was that album that she made with um richard bonding, yeah. with richard bonding of the french opera chestnuts yeah. of like a long list of operas that you've never ever 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 heard of and each one is seven minutes and has nine thousand and forty two notes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it- like, and she memorized this. If you look at her concert, she's memorized this stuff. So mm-hmm. it's insane. Um, one last thing about before we go to a clip, which will take us to our next choice for today. Um, she was nominated for an Academy Award. I think she's one of the few opera singers in recent memory who has been nominated for an Academy Award uh, for uh, a film called Youth from the 2016 Awards. So it's probably a 2015 film. Um, I think Lady Gaga sang on that Uh, Academy Awards and some other people sang, but she was not invited to perform at the Academy Awards uh, because they they thought that her piece being classical and like six minutes long wouldn't translate for the Oscars broadcast. And there was also a transgender artist or a a non-binary artist that was nominated that year who was also not invited to perform. So it's funny how like the 20... 20 and the 2021 Oscars is like revenge of the Koreans. Like, don't you cross to me, Joe. She's our national hero. Now we're going to win everything from here on. Uh, here is a concert from 2006 with pianist Vincenzo Scalera uh, singing one of her hits, uh, theme and variations on uh, Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star by Adolf Adam. A vous dirige, maman. Thank you. 
would like to uh, admit something to all of you. Uh, my name is Ashley Hardgrave, and I am the newest president of the Sean Panikar fan club. Uh, <laughs> is that on GeoCities? <laughs> it's an Excite site. Um, oh, yeah. It's, it's got music that plays in the background and everything. Uh, no, uh, here's the thing. I am fascinated with, and in all the ways that it is acceptable for me to love a happily married man, I am in love with Sean Panikar. I love his voice. I love who he is as a human. Uh, he's just such a fascinating individual to me, and I'm always really into folks the the non music side of really great musicians I want to learn more about that uh, and he's he's just this skilled tenor he's in his prime he just finished up Siegfried and uh, the lyric production of Twilight Gods with mm. friend of the show Christine Durkee he is this multifaceted guy he's got a lot of nods in his story to that notion of sort of cross cultural interdisciplinary you know he sings Rodolfo and Jose and Tomino he made his Met debut in Manolo Skull with Karina Matila uh, and most importantly for our show he is a huge sports fan and a sports radio junkie. So, Sean Panikar, open invitation for you to come on OBS whenever you're ready. (laughs) Uh, So, we know a little bit about the tenor. Let's get into some of the nuts and bolts of who this guy is. So, he's an American. He was born in uh, Pennsylvania to Sri Lankan parents, and they weren't musical folks. Uh, He actually started uh, his college career as a civil engineering major at Michigan. He actually wanted to have a construction company. So his whole plan was to go into civil engineering and undergrad and then do architecture school. He'd already been accepted as a civil engineer and he only auditioned for the music program because he'd been doing like high school choir. Uh, He did it as kind of a, a, a thank you, a nod to his high school choir director. He got in and so he was a double major in music and engineering at the University <laughs> of Michigan. Let's that is think a about wild that for a pairing. second. Goodness he was gracious. a double major in engineering and music at University of Michigan. But good thing neither of those he's... are time-consuming courses of study. <laughs> I yeah, imagine there's yeah. a lot of overlap in the gen eds. <laughs> it's oh yeah. Can you imagine? My goodness, you're doing music theory and French diction while you're also in like you know quantum math. Good lord. Uh, so, but yeah, he. But then all of a sudden he started like catching attention for his voice. Turns out he was very good. And then he started doing that natural trajectory. So he he finished his undergrad in music, stayed for his masters, and then like clockwork, all of those young artist things that all the folks of the '90s and the 2000s were trying to do. It was masters, Marilla, Adler Fellowship, and then almost like clockwork, boom, Met debut, boom, European debut, and now he's a globally sought after tenor. End of story. Just kidding. Not at all. Uh, (laughs) There's so many fantastic things about him. Uh, One of the things that I really love, again, on the non-musical side of things, I promise we'll get to the music. uh, He's he's a big family guy. He he's really open about his strong ties to his family. Um, This is really cute. I I have to share this with you. This is a quote from an interview. Uh, I was in choir. This is at Michigan. I saw a girl across the room and I couldn't take my eyes off of her. I was too shy to ask her out. But I found out that she was a pianist and I conveniently needed an accompanist for my voice lessons. Only reason I didn't quit music was because it was my only way to spend time with her it's also why i practice and try to do well by the end of sophomore year we were dating they are now married with two children maria and mark oh tale as old as time i love it's that. so sweet and he uh and you know because he's this really sought after international tenor and he's on the road a lot he has this really great practice every day that he's away on a gig he writes a letter he physically writes a letter to his wife his son and his daughter every day that he's away. He says it's like journaling and therapy all in one. I'm just, if this if that doesn't warm your heart, I don't know what <laughs> will. It's just so the sweetest, most wonderful thing. That um, is vomit-inducingly cute, yes. I, but in like the best ways, though. It's good vomit, thing. yes. Just good so vomit. wholesome. Um, so while he is this like, you know, really recognized operatic tenor, he is a, he's a bit of a crossover artist as well. Um, did any of you know that he was on America's Got Talent? 
You do now. <laughs> I, no? I was hoping you were going to say porn, but uh, America's oh, Got Talent would be fine. Oh, oh. <laughs> l- l- listen, again, he's a happily married man, but I am unafraid to admit that he's terribly handsome. So good on you. Uh, Panacar and Mrs. Panacar. Great work. Uh, so yeah, he was actually, and still is, part of this trio of tenors called Forte. They were on AGT in 2013. It's this fascinating story. So the three original members of Forte auditioned in like a preliminary round. One of the tenors had to drop out for reasons we can discuss on another show. And the guys that were left panicked and they were like, we got to find somebody. So they go, they start looking on the internet. They find Sean Panikar. They reach out to him. He agrees to do it. Having not met these guys before, the first time that they sing together as a group is on national television in front of 12 million people, Howard Stern, Heidi Klum, Mel B and Howie Mandel. Uh, (laughs) No pressure. He honestly thought that they were just going to like do a round, but like no one's going to, you know, as much as they thought it was a great idea to, like, bring classical singing to a wider audience, they didn't really have a lot of faith that the rest of the world would be on, on board with this. They ended up making it to the finals. Uh, wow. They did not win. But in the wings at the finale concert at Radio City Music Hall, Sony Columbia Records offered them a contract right then and there. Amazing. That's yeah. how you know you yeah, yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, that's that's how you know you made it. And so there are all of these uh, really interesting recordings out there uh, and clips of this group Forte. Uh, and one of the things that I wanted to, you know, show to you guys to really show this notion of classical singing in a crossover way is their most recent release. Uh, it's a cover of David Guetta and Usher's Without You. Uh, so podcast listeners, you're going to hear a little bit of that. Uh, video watchers, you're going to go and check that out on our YouTube feed. I can't win, I can't reign, I will never win this game without you, without you. doing this is because we want to highlight these these artists you know and and there is there's a cultural relevance here yes i know we're highlighting these folks but for me it's like this is an amazing tenor whose heritage happens to be this thing i will say that there are these moments in some interviews that he has where he nods to his heritage uh you know he got to play uh, the lead role in Philip Glass's Satyagraha. And he Mm. says, as the first brown person to sing Gandhi, it brought an extra level of emotion to some of the oppressive scenes that doesn't necessarily come across quite as powerfully when a white singer is doing it. And I think there's, uh, I I think there's some weight there. It's, it's not something that is spoken of a ton with him, but it's, but when he does, it's, you know, it's, it's relevant, it's pointed, it, it hangs in the air and then, and then we move on to other things. Um, speaking of moving on to other things, let's talk about this actual voice, the voice that has gotten him this incredible career that he currently has. Uh, Opera News said this once about him, and they, and they get it right. Uh, the voice is firm. It's sturdy. It's clear. Um, I think it's dramatic, and it's lyrical, and it's versatile. Here's what I love about him. He's got 
you know, he's singing the Rodolfos, the Josés. He's doing some really, really interesting recordings. Shalimar the Clown, Persephone, you know, all the hits. And uh, but what I love about his voice is that it's got that ring and that ping that you want in that type of a tenor role. But at least for me and the recordings that I hear, it sounds effortless. Uh, in the recordings I hear, in the videos I watch, because sometimes you can tell when a tenor is about to go for it. There, There is no read with him. And there's no <laughs> audio read when you're hearing him go to approach something high. It just, it shoots out of the back of his head in a thing that defies the laws of physics. I don't know how he does it, but it's <laughs> extraordinary. It's absolutely beautiful to listen to. There's a lot of clips floating around um, of him and Nicole Cabell in Bohème. I think they did it for Pittsburgh in like 2019. Um, I just want them to take this thing on the road. I want the two of them to tour with this because the pairing of them together dramatically, musically, lyrically, it's just stunning. And speaking of stunning, I want to share a little bit of, of that with you now. Uh, so this is an excerpt from Cajolita Manina from that 2019 Bohème in Pittsburgh. You will video watchers, you'll not see it. It's in the playlist. Uh, audio folks, Nicole Cabell is watching him lovingly, but you will not hear any of her. This is just Sean <laughs> Panikar singing an excerpt of Cajolita Manina. And Nicole Cabell sighs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So there you have it. Those are those are some things. I mean, you're going to find a lot of different clips of him floating around. It's it's one of the great things of singers that are getting more famous now is we're starting to see a lot more video clips. One of the other clips that is a total delight, and I picked this exclusively for George. This is a bonus track. Uh, Sean Panikar is a dual alum of the University of Michigan. Uh, and so University of Michigan this year, as an honor to and a tribute to their 2021 graduates, just put out last week a video of this gorgeous arrangement of the alma mater for University of Michigan, the yellow and blue. It's absolutely stunning. Uh, and it's, again, a little nod to that classical crossover because uh, you can hear a really beautiful classical technique in his voice, but he softens it enough to sound a little bit contemporary. Apologies for the uh, siren that's going on outside my window. Uh, and it's got a friend of the show, Janai Brugger. It's got Sean Pankar. It's got Broadway star Taylor Lauderman. And it's got Broadway and opera star Jonathan Christopher. So go ahead and check that out on our playlist as well. Yellow the fields where ripens the grain And yellow the moon on the harvest Colors that float in the light
my choice for this segment, uh, I, I knew that my compatriots would go in a more singery direction. So I wanted to find a composer who really exemplifies sort of uh, the best in what's happening now in opera. And for me, one of the most fascinating composers um, who is working right now is Du Yun. Uh, she was born in Shanghai and moved to uh, uh, the United States. Um, and she is really, I do not exaggerate, one of the most interesting composers currently working today. She hasn't done many operas yet. Uh, she's worked on, uh, I believe, three, three, uh, three full operas, and uh, she, she contributed to a fourth one. But she's already won a Pulitzer Prize for one of them, along with friend of the show, librettist Royce Vavrek, for her work on Angel's Bone. That was my introduction to her. That was, uh, and um, that was just quite an introduction, to say the least. Uh, she has this really interesting approach to to polystylism. Um, uh, I mean, you all know my uh, my my uh, pining for Russian composer Alfred Schnitka, who is also known for that sort of thing. But whereas Schnitka's kind of like thumbs his nose here and there, and he brings in deliberately like low art, quote unquote, to the high art and really is really sort of trying to get a, almost a rise out of the audience. Uh, Duyun really kind of plays it completely straight. Th uh, this is a brutal opera. This is not an opera for everyone. I will go ahead and say that now. Um, it concerns uh, themes of sex trafficking, uh, sexual violence and things like that. But you are never at a point where you are shrinking back from the horror just because it's a show. And that's really remarkable, too, because opera is such a heightened art form. I think sometimes there can be a safety in that where you're sitting, you're looking at a proscenium, you're hearing the orchestral uh, orchestra, orchestra, you know, soaring. You you see, you know, uh, you hear uh, voices that are not typically what you hear on the radio. There is no safety net when Du Yun is writing. And, and that is especially the case in Angel's Bone. She jumps from um, faux Renaissance polyphony straight into uh, 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 hip hop post-punk sort of sounds to uh, avant-garde, you know, all minimalist sounds. Um, and, it, and it works. It really, really, really works. To give you sort of like the two-minute sort of synopsis, two minutes, sorry, two-sentence two synopsis, um, basically a male angel and a female angel fall to earth. And um, this couple that's sort of down on their luck find them. Uh, and instead of, you know, helping them with whatever they need, they decide to literally clip their wings and hold their feathers hostage uh, in exchange for being essentially forced into sexual slavery. And it is... Family show. It is not a family show. But the, uh, the scene with like the clipping uh, of the of the wings is just... It, 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 it is painful, like physically painful to listen to. And your heart just rips for it. There, the horror in the story is there and you hear it in in the work and it's very much a kind of a a, a big story. Uh, Du Yun often talks about her cross cultural sort of influences uh, coming from East Asia and the world of the West. And a lot, unfortunately, for many people, that meeting comes in the form of uh, sex slavery, particularly in the South uh, South Pacific uh, and and places like that. Um, where, you know, wealthy Westerners and wealthy Chinese businessmen will, you know, essentially do these kinds of things. And 
really opening the eye onto that in a really uncomfortable way, but in still a kind of a, a, a cathartic way is just, it's, it's exactly the kind of stories that I think modern relevant opera should be telling. That being said, not, not one for everyone, but I did make sure that the playlist did not have any video. <laughs> so you can just <laughs> listen to it. Um, this is a scene from the original cast recording. If you're listening to the podcast, it features the two angels after they've fallen to earth as the human couple tries to figure out what to do with them. You'll hear that the uh, male angel is sung by uh, Kyle Bielfeld, I believe is, is how you pronounce it. Uh, he's a traditional operatic tenor and Jennifer Child plays the female angel and she is singing in a much more uh, pop punky sort of way very amplified and the way their voices interweave is very interesting but it works uh, the couple in the background trying to figure out what's going on are played by baritone Kyle Fortmiller and mezzo-soprano Abigail Fisher Of course, that isn't the only opera Du Yun has done. And I think that um, on the other hand, you have this brutal work like Angel's Bone, but she's produced some really beautiful uh, works. And one that I keep going back to is her selection for the opera Eight Songs from Isolation, which premiered during the pandemic. It was shot completely on iPhones all over the world, multiple composers, multiple singers. And I think my favorite section from the piece is her aria, uh, Every Glass a Spring, sung in, I, I believe, uh, 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 Cantonese. I could be wrong. It might be Mandarin. 
um, by bass baritone Shenyang. And he's just staring out a window wistfully as sort of time passes just by himself alone in the pandemic, accompanied by a shang and a pipa, which are traditional Chinese instruments. So cool to hear that music, Weston. Thank you for sharing with us. Uh, I want to turn back a little bit more to where we started, you know, the singers. Um, and I want to talk about the Korean soprano Hei Jung Lee. She is a, a Korean coloratura soprano who has really made a name for herself in the last decade, singing both like soubrette type roles and the really high flying coloratura things like The Queen of the Night, Zerminetta, Lucia de Lammermoor. And while all of those roles require high notes, they require a lot of charm, they require a lot of character work, they require completely different things of the voice. Uh, even though it sounds high to all of us who are not sopranos, um, the <laughs> way that it goes high really matters with music like this. The approach to it, how high you stay there, kind of like what is the weighted average pitch of the aria, how, what it, is its tessitura. And those can vary greatly, even with, even with all of these warhorse arias like that. So to to have uh, Hei Jung Lee is a is a singer who really is leaning into her versatility early and it early in her career and making quite a name for herself with it. Uh, she's a graduate of Seoul National University, Dresden, Manus, uh, got a diploma from Indiana University, and went on to be a fellow at Marilla. Her main breakout was 10 years ago in 2001 when she appeared on a competition, not America's Got Talent, like Sean Panikar, but <laughs> the one and only BBC Cardiff Singer of the World. Uh, and then late that same season, she made her debut at San Francisco Opera in the role of Madame Mao in Nixon and China. So at Cardiff Singer of the World, the arias that she presented were a Handel aria, Zerminetta from Ariadne of Naxos, and I'm the Wife of Mao Zedong. Totally different <laughs> repertoire, all over the place. Very challenging. Uh, I want to kick this off with uh w with a clip of her Zerbinetta's aria for our video watchers. You know where the link. You know where the po the playlist is at this point. Uh, and for our podcast, this is from the Cardiff Singer of the World broadcast with Lawrence Foster conducting the orchestra of the Welsh National Opera. I'm 
And she did go on to become a finalist in that competition, but did not end up taking home the grand prize that year. But I think it's a pretty good consolation prize to say that uh, her regular appearances at San Francisco Opera and other opera companies all over the world have really started building up quite a high profile as an artist who is unafraid of new music and unafraid of these really challenging war horses. In 2017, she debuted the role of Ah Sing in John Adams's Girls of the Golden West, also at San Francisco. And when I when I listen to her singing this music, what I really take away is what she what she brings to this is very special. Like not only is there a silvery tone and a really masterful control of dynamics, but a real keen dramatic instinct comes through you never get the sense that she is like going on autopilot or that she's just come some kind of a pitch robot all of the phrases are very clearly planned out and she makes choices that that are really unique and really bold and it's it's remarkable to hear such individual phrases that feel so organic um, and all at the same time she is so poised i don't think i have ever seen a singer with such calm posture and just demeanor while singing leaps all over the place um i couldn't find a video of this but a lot of reviews online refer to a production of tales of hoffman that she did uh where during the doll song she was suspended by a crane over the audience (laughs) to sing her climactic (laughs) note final final note so uh yeah you know something that that all of us have to do in san francisco it was in back in yeah i think i saw yeah yeah um and there's there's just a notable commitment to diction and clarity of text, no matter where in the range she is. And the performance that ties all of this together for me is an- is another one of the arias that she offered in the in the Singer of the World competition, the I'm the Wife of Mao Zedong from Adams's Nixon in China. She has made a name for herself in this role, uh, and not only is it notoriously difficult, but she has dialed it up to eleven. The speed <laughs> of this aria in this recording is a good two minutes shorter than almost any other recording (laughs) of I Am The Wife of Mao Zedong that you can find out there. So Uh, it's exhilarating. pitch robot is now forever in my vernacular and it also might be my new drag name (laughs) (laughs) leave it in leave it in george 
Um, I'll wrap up our segment. I, of course, have a director, so there's no audio clip to share. Uh, Mo Jo, is she a friend of mine? Yes, she is. Is she also a phenomenal director? Absolutely. Winner of Opera America's Director Designer Award some years ago. She has worked in this country. She's worked all over China as well. Her home country uh, works in both countries at this point and definitely one to watch. Such an incredible use of design, of spectacle, of dreams and imaginations on stage. Mojo, one of my favorite directors. Getting into a few minutes of sports before we get to the drill. The uh, Jaguars are signing Tim Tebow. <laughs> in the words of letter, in the words of letter, Kenny, allegedly. Uh, so this has just started coming out uh, in the last like day or so. So the word on the street is yes, the Jacksonville Jaguars are going to sign Tim Tebow. As a quarterback, ha, nay. As a tight end, a position that he has never played in high school, he's never played in college, or in his previous three years in the NFL, which, by the way, ended in 2015. The only thing I can figure out that Shahid Khan is doing is giving Urban Meyer some sort of birthday present. So we'll see if this actually, like, comes to fruition. But, yeah, word on the street is we're going to see some kneeling tight ends in Jacksonville come 2022. I know he's probably, like, super uh, anti-gay. Probably. Like, uh, yeah. But I wouldn't kick him out of bed. So. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be married to him. Hey, you know, uh, the other person who got That's kicked out, of course, Sean Culkin. We hardly knew you. There you were ready to accept your Dude. your uh, salary in Bitcoin. And then you got cut by the Kansas City Chiefs. So uh, it's never going to oh, happen. Yes. Sadly, what is going to happen is the two-minute drill. This just in. The Two Minute Drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Earlier today, the winners of the 2021 International Opera Awards were chosen. Friend of the show, Jakob Josef Orlinski, won for the best solo album for Face d'Amore. More winners after the drill. So far, less than half of the 106 U.S. opera companies have signed the pledge for racial equity and systemic change in opera. Those who have signed the pledge, authored by the Black Opera Alliance, include Seattle, Austin, The Met, and Washington National Opera. 33% of companies are reportedly in progress in terms of committing to the pledge, a further 19% have yet to respond, and one opera company, Opera San Antonio, has refused to sign altogether. You can read the pledge on operaboxscore.com. The Bayerische Staatsoper has founded its own label that will include both audio and video recordings. The creatively named Bayerische Staatsoper Recordings will launch later this month with a release of Mahler's Seventh Symphony, followed by Die Tote Stadt, starring Jonas Kaufmann and Marlis Peterson. Now that's uh, German efficiency for you. Soprano Ainona Arteta has received the Grand Cruz del Dos de Mayo, the highest award given by the community of Madrid, to an individual or institution that has contributed to political, economic, social, or cultural endeavors. Trinidadian-born tenor Neil Latchman has won the very specific Guinness World Record for highest operatic harp performance. Latchman, alongside harpist Siobhan Brady, performed a concert in the Himalayan mountains at almost 12,000 feet above sea level. <laughs> I mean, I've heard about ending concerts on a high note, but this is, well, it's actually pretty appropriate. <laughs> 
had a room shot, but I'm all set up, and then and then you went with it. Uh, the Met has announced the finalists for its National Council auditions. In another win for Korea, three Korean artists, including bass baritone Jong Won Han, tenor Duke Kim, and soprano Hyo Young Kim, will compete with other singers for the grand prize of twenty thousand dollars on May sixteenth. Spain's Opera de Oviedo has lost almost four hundred thousand euros since the pandemic began. It was the only opera house in Spain to present a full season last year. President of the Opera de Oviedo Foundation Juan Carlos Rodriguez Ovejer called for contributions from other local institutions to make up for the deficit. The request comes on the heels of a prior statement that called out the government's perceived unfairness in distributing COVID relief. A New York Times roundup details environmentally friendly investments made by opera companies like La Scala's new solar panels and Opera Sydney's completion of an artificial reef alongside the house's seawall. Alison Tickell, founder of London-based climate charity Julie's Bicycle, noted that opera companies have a unique opportunity to make a positive impact on how people think and respond to climate change. In trade news, bass baritone Devon Tynes has a new gig as the first ever creative partner of Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra. During the residency, Tynes will appear in the company's productions, will be involved in strategic planning, and will curate an online show called The Ultimate Outcome, examining the role of the modern-day Baroque ensemble. This week's Yellow Cards. France. Paris National Opera has announced plans to, to reopen May 19th, including programs at the Palais Garnier, Opera Bastille, and the Théâtre des Bouffes du Nord. Germany, Bayerisches back, all right! The Bavarian State <laughs> Opera will reopen on May 13th with the first act of Die Walküre. Italy! Teatro Carlo Felice in Genoa has announced a slate of concerts in May, with a return to opera with Donizetti's Elixir of Love in June. USA! Ally Opera is back in business on June 6th with a free performance of Oedipus Rex. The catch, one, patrons have to provide proof of full vaccination or negative COVID test results. Two, they actually have to want to see Oedipus Rex. This week's red card goes to Austria. Schubertiada has canceled all performances in their first concert series. And on this day, May 10th in 1824, it was the first performance in the U.S. of The Marriage of Figaro, sung in English at the Park Theatre in New York City. Amboise Thomas' Angelique et Medoa premiered on this day in Paris in 1843. In 1894, it was the first performance of Richard Strauss's opera Guntrum in Weimar. And in 1907, it was the first performance of slighted OBS March Madness Elite 8 opera Ariana and Bluebeard by Paul Dukas, and I'm not bitter about it. It was uh, the birth of English tenor Richard Lewis, who was born on this day in 1914. In 1923, first performance of the very spooky Owen Wingrave by Benjamin Britten. In 1942, it was the debut of soprano Dorothy Kirsten as Mimi in La Boheme. And in 1997, first performance of Philip Glass's opera, The Marriage Between Zones 3, 4, and 5. That's a lot of barbers to marry off. And that's a lot of two-minute drill.
That was soprano Dorothy Kirsten singing Mimi's Act 3 aria Donde Lieta Uschi from a studio recording with Jean Morel conducting the RCA Victor Orchestra. Dorothy Kirsten, not a name that really survived with people other than like the most rabid fans, but she was definitely a leading soprano in in New York <laughs> uh, in the post-war period and one of the first really homegrown American talents who started making it big. Uh, and for her, that happened partially because World War II cut her time short in Italy where she was studying. <laughs> when we were doing our pre-show meeting, we were trying to figure out a simple way of talking about the International Opera Awards and I was just so not confused. One. So so let me get this right. In the 2019-2020 season, shows and opera houses and artists did their thing. They were nominated for the 2020 Opera Awards in May. Those didn't happen. So those right. awards were just given out tonight in London <laughs> yes. for things that happened two years ago. Which is why we have a situation where the Metropolitan Opera Chorus one in 2021, despite having all of three performances before the pandemic. Uh, other, other quick highlights before George runs away with it. Uh, Mexico representing Javier Camarena winning Best Male Singer. Uh, we stand uh, Liza Davidson. I forget. Is she Swedish or uh, Norwegian? Norwegian. I believe. Norway representing for Best Female Singer. Mm, she's great. Um, we know that friend of the show won for solo recital recording. The Reader's Award or the Matt Cummings Award goes to Jamie Barton. <laughs> also who I would have given it to out of this crop of yes. nominees. So. Yeah, and we stand. Young singers, they gave out two, one for each cisgender, uh, Javier Anduaga and Vasilisa Berjanskaya. Never heard of them. That's why they're young singers. <laughs> we'll get them on the show eventually. Don't yeah. worry. Uncle Oliver just tells it like it is, doesn't he? <laughs> you know, you don't see the name Detlev Glanert often enough. And yet here he is winning the world premiere for his opera Oceana at the Deutsche Oper. It, can it, anyway, I want people to write in. If you've seen a show by Detlev Glanert, I want you to write in operaboxcore at gmail.com. You can write directly to me because I have. But, uh, so have I. <laughs> which, which show did you see, Weston? I, it was, uh, I, I don't remember the name of it. it was wow, like it was a, that good, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. that's the thing. I feel like there were a lot of good, uh, good ones in that category. I wasn't expecting Detlev Glanert to... To get one, I was uh, my money uh, was on Prism, but uh, I'm just a big Prism stand. So Prism was what awesome. are you going to do? I I I saw Detlev Glanert's um, Caligula at English National Opera, and um, I I met him outside the theater before the show. Drink. It's kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> I love the International Opera Awards because they show me just how far I have to go as an artist director. I mean, this list of directors, the list of directors on the new productions is just it's sick. How talented these people are. Mm -hmm. Director Robert Carson wins um, the, in 2021. Lydia Steyer also on the list there. Paul Curran, friend of the show, Graham Vick. Graham Vick didn't win for Best Director, but his company, the Birmingham Opera Company, wins the Education and Outreach category. Of course, Chicago Opera Theater nominated for this same category just a I thought few we, they won years ago. 2018. And, and winners, were they I think not? so, yes. And yeah, winners in, as well. Yeah, 18. Uh, Birmingham... It, it is a much maligned city, you know, it's one, second or third largest city <laughs> in England. And the connection between that opera company and the city of Birmingham, the way that Graham Vick has enabled the community of Birmingham to be in the audience 
and on stage in those productions is nothing short of miraculous. Absolutely, they should win. I don't know, George. I think they kind of stole it from Birmingham, uh, Alabama's opera company, my alma mater. But, you know, that's just me. The Metropolitan Opera National Council is packed with Americans and Koreans. So I'm just curious to see if we're going to continue the trend of correcting Sumi Joes being wronged uh, <laughs> by choosing one of these Koreans to, well, you know that five end up actually winning in the end, but... Um, It'd be great if Duke Kim uh, takes home the prize or one of the prizes. I think he's fantastic. He was considered for the Ryan Opera Center here in Chicago. He did not get selected. I think that was a big mistake. I think he's going to go far. Uh, so those results out on May 16th. So next show, yeah. we'll be able to talk about those. Yeah, sure will. I just, I loved this article about the green potential and the green impact mm-hmm. of um, of opera. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'm not going to get out the Sharpie. I'm going to get out this biodegradable pencil. Uh, <laughs> there theater, you go. Message. Theater is a wasteful art form. This sure. idea that we build sets and we throw them away, that we build these costumes, then we essentially, some are put into storage, yes, but eventually they're, they're thrown away. The amount of electricity that's used. I, I love these initiatives, right? So we're switching out in many opera houses now. LED lights for what were originally filament bulbs were considering. Let's go back to candles. Now <laughs> that would safe. be exciting. With all that fabric. With yes. all that fabric. Yes, exactly. Next, we're going to suggest like that these... we bring back the whale fat lanterns. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I'm really excited by some of these initiatives. And uh, I pointed out uh, that uh, uh, Opera Australia, I believe, um, is already carbon neutral at, for a couple of years now, which I think is great. I think that'd be a great goal for essentially all uh, opera companies to have in the near future. I mean, when your opera house is right next to the Great Barrier Reef, that, you know, it's going to be very top of mind. True. Uh, (laughs) What what comes to mind for me reading this article is there is such a luxury premium for being able to be eco-friendly. And so many of opera sponsors tend to be very ritzy companies. So I do hope that this continues to like spill down into more affordable levels of things, but like Mm -hmm. absolutely a great start. What I also want to see is as many of these opera houses begin to age, if there's going to be new construction, that's where I want to see the greenness take hold, Mm -hmm. especially in these companies that are a a little bit younger and newer and have a more energetic feel towards opera. You know, the the country of China has been just injecting funding into the arts for the last 15, 20 years, and they're building houses left, right, and center. So what I would love to see is for the greenness to spill over into that new construction. Uh, There's this company, it's a startup out of Boston. uh, It's called Boston Metal. And basically they are coming up with green steel, which is the foundation of every single building. Uh, so I think uh, the CEO, Tadeo Carnero, who wants to reduce the carbon footprint of steel production by 10%, uh, I think he needs to start pairing with opera houses. You want to reduce footprints? Bring back Park and Bark. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? There it is. That's the mic drop. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. All right, we're going to wrap the show up. Good call, bad call. Oliver Camacho. I don't normally like to promote things that I did, but uh, Nicholas Pond came on my show on WFMT and it's available uh, to be streamed until February, February, not February. Uh, what month are we in? May? Are we in May. 2021? When are the Opera Awards? Um, <laughs> on May, until May 21st. 
So go to WFMT.com and find that episode of Listening to Singers. He talks a lot about identity. We didn't talk about gay stuff. We did talk about uh, being biracial and being an Asian male singer. And he has said some really trenchant things about that. And so mm-hmm. go listen to it. Matt Cummings. Uh, so I had a Weston Williams moment this weekend. I've been watching the AFI <laughs> Top 100 Movies in order, and I got to number 30 this past weekend, which for all you AFI stands out there, you know already that I saw Apocalypse Now for the first time. And <laughs> I really know why that scene's iconic now. It's a bop. I'm going to have to watch it like four more times this week. <laughs> and tie in with opera. The, the right, time, right of the, the Valkyries, yeah. That, that's the one. Yeah, that's yeah. the yeah, iconic that, that was scene the, to that which was I was referring. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Just to spell it out. <laughs> I like to leave him wanting more. <laughs> Weston Williams, go. My 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 bad call is Oliver not knowing about movies, but my good call. Uh, I, I did want to wish a good, very good luck to my friend Emily Sierra, who is uh, competing on Saturday in the in those national council. Doesn't sound Korean to me. Earlier. Yeah, well, if, if if any American must win, Emily Sierra should do it. Ashley Hardgrave. Uh, over the weekend, uh, Chicago lost an arts titan. Uh, Jim maybe passed away earlier in the weekend, uh, and he and his wife Kay are the reason that most of the at least musical arts currently in Chicago exist and, and radio arts. Uh, you, if you're a Chicagoan, you know about the Jim and K maybe performance studio where all of WBEZ broadcasts from. Uh, they are pivotal members and donors for the Chicago symphony for the Chicago lyric opera. They were the founding donors and original board members for the city's performing arts high school, Chicago high school for the arts. Jim maybe is the reason that arts exist in Chicago the way they do today. And he will be greatly missed. Uh, so I encourage you to check out some of the tributes that will be coming out of this incredible man and his wonderful life. So rest well. That's it for this week's edition of America's talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore@gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher or just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is, uh, nah, you're fine. I'm creative consultant is Oliver Camacho, our audio and video editor, Weston Williams, for your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about Sumi Joe's gowns. We're back with an all-new show next week. Plus, you'll get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and we'll find out who won the Met. Join us.